Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message. If you got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. We started a sermon series last week called Life Lessons with Jesus, and we're going to continue that, that today. Here's what it says, Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Here's what it says, verse 1. Now he said to the disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what what will I do since my master is taking the money, taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I don't do manual labor. I'm a white collar criminal. And I'm ashamed to beg. I can't get out there on the street. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm removed from management, people will, be, will welcome me into their homes. So, so, so he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And here's what he said. He says, hey, hey, how much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. And this guy said, 100 measures of oil. And he said, here's what I want you to do. Take your invoice, sit down real quick, and write 50. Write 50. I'm going to give you a discount. All right. The next guy said, hey, hey, how much do you owe? He said, hey, man, I, I owe your manager, I owe your, your master 100 measures of wheat. He said, take your invoice, write 80. And so here's what happens. At this point, you're thinking when the master comes in, he's going to straight strangle this dude. They're going to have to call the cops, whatever. Right. Here's what happens in verse 8. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly for the children of this This age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. And here's what Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Here's a very key important part, very key life principle. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. Oh, and I get a million dollars, I'm going to help everybody. If you're not helping everybody with one, one dollar, you're not helping nobody with a million. It's just the facts. So if you have, been not, have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who entrusts you to what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to somebody else, who's going to give you your own? No servant can serve two masters since he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, it's impossible, to serve both God and money. If you've got a KJV, it probably says mammon. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. Thank you for this gathering of your people, Lord. I just pray today, God, that you would work in our hearts. Lord, I, I don't want this to be just another sermon or another Sunday where we go through the motions, but I pray that with your help, God, you would transform us right, right here in this room Lord, I pray that you would draw us near to you, that we would grow in our relationship with you, God. I pray for, for the person that's been walking with Jesus for quite some time, Lord, I pray that you would renew their faith, that you would make them alive again. Lord, for the person who may not be walking with the Lord, or they, they're just in this weird, strange place, 
spiritually, Lord, I just pray that you would draw them near to you, God. I pray that today would mark the beginning of a new, profound relationship with you, Lord. And so, Father, I just pray you bless our time together. Uh, we pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name, and the people of God said, Amen. Maybe may be seated in the Lord's presence. From the sermon series, Life Lessons with Jesus, my sermon title this morning is Set for Life. Set, set for Life. In a recent New York Times op-ed entitled, Money is Up, Patriotism and Religion are Down, opinion columnist by the name of Peter Coy wrote in the New York Times, He wrote a response to a recent survey that was done by the Wall Street Journal that found startling declines in what we would deem as traditional American values. I mean, this was was a bit shocking. And so a few things that the survey uncovered was that in 1998, 70% of Americans said patriotism was very important to them. The recent survey done this year said only 38% of Americans said that patriotism was important to them. So 1998, 70% of Americans said that they they were patriotic, that 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 was an important American traditional value. Today, only 38% of people said that patriotism is important to them. Furthermore, in 1998, 62% of Americans said religion was important to them. This year, only 39% said religion was important to them. Here are a few other uh, values that we, we would have deemed extremely important in past years that have also declined. Having children is far less of an important value for people now than it was back in 1998. Involvement in the community is far less valuable for people today than it was in 1998. Tolerance, tolerance was highly valued in 1998. Today, nobody can tolerate anybody. Hard work was a tradition, was a, was a, was a value to be upheld in 1998. Now, now today, not so much. All of these traditional American values that we found important have fallen by the wayside. But here's what, what Peter Coy wrote in the article. He said, in, in observation of the Wall Street Journal's article, here's what he said. He said, the only priority the journal tested that has grown in importance in the past quarter century is, you guessed it, money, which was cited as very important by 43% of the people in this new survey, which was the only thing that was up from 31% in 1998. So the only thing that people care about nowadays that they did care about back then is money. And so one, one, one person stated in the actual article in the Wall Street Times, he said that this should not be taken as evidence that Americans are greedy or, or care only about money. 60% of the respondents said that their cost of living was rising. Can I get a witness? And that cost of living was creating strains in their finances. He went on to say that economic precarity is driving this. He said that people aren't trying to get rich. They're just trying to get by. Y'all felt that in y'all's spirit. (laughs) And here's what Coy said in the the New York Times article. He said, I'm struggling with what to make of this survey. 
One easy take, which I predict will be heard in houses of worship this coming weekend, is that Americans need to return to traditional values and forsake the glorification of mammon. Well, Peter Coy is right because today this preacher here in Orlando, Florida, is addressing this very thing that we should all forsake the glorification of what we call money. And in this parable in Luke 16, Jesus is highlighting for his disciples the right use of wealth to drive this very important point home. And so Jesus is using a parable to communicate something to them. And so if you don't know what a parable is, maybe you didn't grow up reading the Bible, maybe you didn't go to vacation Bible school, maybe you didn't go go to Sunday school. Well, a parable is when Jesus tells a story using something that his main audience or his original audience would be able to relate to. He would use something that they would would be able to relate to to communicate what he would deem as a spiritual truth. And so in this case, he's using something that they would have been able to relate to to communicate a deep and profound spiritual truth to his original audience. And in this case, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and what he wants to communicate to them is the significance of being diligent and preparing for their future with their finances. One of the most important ways that we exercise diligence in this day and preparedness is by the way we actually manage our money. I am convinced that most of our money struggles have nothing to do with whether we have enough income or not. That could be the case, but more times it's not. It's not the income. It's how we manage the income that we do have. And so I want to just kind of wreck your brain today because we've often, we grew up with these bents and leans towards money. And, and so uh, there's a book called The Psychology of Money, which is a New, New York Times bestseller. Which I, I suggest everyone read The Psychology of Money. And what this book puts forth is that the way that we see money is primarily shaped by our personal history. So however your parents saw money is typically how you see money. If you were heavy spenders in your household, chances are you will be a heavy spender now. If money was, was, was scarce, if money didn't, was hard to come by and, and, and money was tight, you will tend to act that way even when you have more than enough money. And so today I, I want to present something forward to you, God's vision of money. He, here is how God sees money. We tend to think that what I have belongs to me and it's mine Well, the truth of the matter is, is that what you have is not yours. That's just not money. That includes your life too. What you have and what you possess is not yours. I want to suggest to you today that everything that you have, including your life, is on loan to you from God. And so the Bible would call this stewardship. We are called to be stewards. We are called to be stewards. Now, here's what a steward is not. A steward is not an owner. You know what a steward is? A steward is a manager of somebody else's resources. All right? And so I want to give you a working definition today that should be on the screen of stewardship. Here's what stewardship is. Stewardship is the responsibility of managing God's resources, not just of money, but of time, talent, and treasure for the glory of God and for the good of others. Here's what also what I want you to know. Understanding stewardship means understanding that I own nothing and God owns everything and he has given me the privilege and responsibility to manage, not mine, but his possessions. You know what the Bible says? It says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That, that means that everything in this earth belongs 
to God. And so this will help us and put our relationship with money in its proper place. The way we approach money is not separate from our salvation. The way we approach money is not separate from our salvation. When when God saved you, he he didn't save parts of you. He saved you holistically and comprehensively. Every part of you has been redeemed, including the relationship you have with money. Oftentimes we get saved and, and we know that there are bad influences in our lives and we start cutting people off. We stop going places that, that we used to go. We make all of these drastic changes, which is good and we should. But oftentimes we treat money as if it's something separate that God saved me from this, but God didn't save me from my bad perspective on money. The truth of the matter is when God saved you, he saved your wallet too. Therefore, that. Th- If this is true, there is an expectation for the way that we manage our money, regardless of how much or how little we have. We we have not been called to just just give 10% to God, and with the other 90, I just ball till I fall. No, 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 no. that's that's not not right. Yes, we we give 10% to God, but but in actuality, we don't even own the 90%. He owns 100%. Like, like we own absolutely nothing, but God lets us come alongside him and be stewards of what rightfully belongs to him. And if you have this perspective, it will radically change your relationship with money. If you know that money belongs to God, then you can go to bed at night. If you have been called to be a steward and you have, this implies that none of what you have belongs to you Rather, 100% of what you have belongs to someone else. And so when we think of this idea of stewardship, it's not a foreign concept in, in the Scriptures. It's not a foreign concept. When we think about, think about Abraham, Abraham had a steward. He had a household manager, a, a person by the name of Eleazar. He managed Abraham's household affairs. And so here's what a steward's responsibility was. Biblically speaking, a steward was a business manager or a state manager for a wealthy person. This person was hired to manage the resources of someone who was wealthy. They were responsible for the administration of someone else's estate. That They were empowered to make business decisions on behalf of the individual that employed them. And so if they made a decision, it was just like the owner was making a decision. They, but, but here's the caveat. They had to make their decisions with the money in the best interest of the owner. So, so if I have to make decisions in the best interest of someone else, that means that I can't do with it what I want to do with it. Right? And, and, and so, so this is what, what the idea of stewardship communicates. The goal was to invest the owner's assets in such a way that when it was time to give an account, the portfolio looked better than it did when they got it. This is what stewardship is, people. When you go on your job, you, you are actually a steward. Your job employs you to be a steward. And, and the goal for your employment is for you to make your role and make the company look better than it did before you were hired. Right, right. So, so, so this is what we've been called to in every area of life. And here are three traits that every good steward will have. They'll be diligent. They'll be diligent. They'll be on top of stuff. They'll be decent meaning that they'll be a decent person, someone that you can actually trust. And thirdly, they'll be devoted because who wants to hire somebody 
that won't be devoted to them. Right? So there are three things. A good steward will be a good steward will be diligent, he'll be decent, and they'll be devoted. They'll be diligent, they'll be decent, and they'll be devoted. And these things are needed because one thing that cannot be done is to waste the resources of the person that hired you. Which leads us to our parable. The parable tells us that there was a rich man who heard that there were some accusations about his steward, his, his manager, the manager of his household possessions. And, and, and this person was squandering this owner's possessions. And, and so here you, we hear rich, a rich man, and our Western mind automatically feels good toward this person because that's how we see ourselves. Because we, we, we grow up, we want to be rich. Right? We, we, we want to be rich. I'm not condemning you if you want to be rich or you want to be wealthy. That's not what I'm doing. But, but when we hear a rich man, we think well-to-do. We, 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 think, we think of the rich people in our culture. But, but in, for Jesus' original audience, in this time, they didn't see rich man as something good or something to be at. A rich person was not somebody that was admired. A rich person was somebody that people felt animosity towards. And so whenever you hear rich person or there was a rich man in the Bible, you can assume that they're saying that this person had questionable character. Here's what they're saying. They're saying that even if this person is rich, they did it by ill-gotten gains. They, they took advantage of poor people in order to make themselves rich. So when Jesus' audience heard there was a rich man, they automatically assigned questionable character and reputation to this person. And so they don't feel sorry for him. They, they actually want him to be taken advantage of. So th- this, this wealthy person has somebody that manages his affairs, and this, this person is his steward, and this steward has the authority to do, to do business on the owner's behalf. He has the will and deal in the business world. He has to make relationships. He has to do whatever he can to put his owner at an advantage. This is how he'll excel in his job. He has the authority to negotiate contracts on behalf of the owner. He can do business. And so while this rich man is away, he hears these rumors that his money is gone, that that his money has been wasted. He said he squandered his possessions. Now, if you were here last week, this word squandered, this is not the first time that it appears. Because last week we studied about the prodigal, the prodigal son. And one of the things that it said that the prodigal son did was that he squandered his father's estate. And so here we have another man who's squandering uh, the possessions that belong to somebody else. And so he's wasted all of his, managed, his, his master's money. He's mismanaged the finances. He's probably went out and bought all kinds of things that his manager didn't tell him to buy. And he's wasted his manager's money. He literally has lost everything. And, and so... So here's what I told you, that whenever a steward makes a decision, it's just like the owner made the decision. So, so the manager can't just, the owner can't just chalk this up to a, a mistake made because it says he was squandering his possessions. This wasn't a one-time ordeal. This was something he was doing over time. So he was funneling money to wherever he wanted to funnel it to over a long period of time. And because the manager trusted him, he was none the wiser. He's taking advantage of somebody else's resources. But the manager, the owner, hears about this crook that he didn't know was a crook. And so the manager has to do something because his reputation is on the line. And so when a steward does something that that is unsavory or that is underhanded, it doesn't so much reflect on the steward, but it reflects on the person who hired the steward. Does that make sense to y'all? 
And so his poor stewardship is a reflection upon the owner who gave him the responsibility and the trust to do the right thing. And those of us who've been called to follow Jesus, we've been called to steward what we have on behalf of somebody else. And so when we are managing our money, we don't just represent ourselves, we represent the actual owner. So he called the manager in, say, um, I'm out of town. But when I get back, it's a wrap. I, I imagine, and he did it like, like, like this, old, uh, this old reality star. He had this TV show where he brought celebrities in to like do business projects and stuff. And I imagine he said on the phone, you're fired. I wonder whatever happened to that reality TV star. <laughs> but, 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 but this guy was caught red-handed. Like, he, he's guilty as charged. There ain't no apology. There's nothing, there's nothing you can do. He was squandering his position. So, so he's been doing this for a long time. There's no performance plan for him to be put on. There's no probationary period. There, there's, there's, no, there's just clean out your desk and, and turn in your keys. Matter of fact, if you work in a financial, a financial institution, they don't tell you to go and clean out your desk. When they fire you, they tell you, go ahead and leave now, and we'll ship your stuff to you in a box. They, they don't want you to take no more stuff. Just, just leave now. We've suffered enough with you. Just leave now. We'll send it to you in the mail. Now imagine this is what happens to this guy. The gravity of his crime is that he's professionally as, as good as dead. He can't work to undo what he's done because he squandered his owner's money. And as the parable is written, it's weird because it's almost like the steward has some time to do some stuff before his termination happens. He, he, he's got a fire, he's fired him, but m- maybe he says you, you got until the, the end of business. That, that's, that, I, I imagine that's what's happening in the text. And, and so this puts this, this guy in a precarious situation. He has to do something, he's gotta do it fast. He's, he's got some decisions to make. There, there, he has no future unless he does something with his money. Reemployment is not possible. He can't dress up his LinkedIn profile. It's a wrap for him. He's been stealing money. Nobody's going to hire this guy. It, it, it is a professional wrap. There is no severance package to be had. That there is no, no, uh, 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 there's no, uh, what is this, uh, unemployment. There's no unemployment for him to collect. Th- th- there is no stimmies on, there's no stimulus package. No, no more stimmies are going to be handed out. You, you got to make a decision. It's a wrap for you. It's over for you. You got to do something in the now to secure your future. And so this guy has a narrow window of opportunity to act before he is physically, before he physically has a hand over the accounts. And so what we see in the text, the tone of the text is that there's this sense of urgency. He cannot afford to procrastinate. He can't bury his head in the sand. He has to come up with something in order to secure his future. And what he does is one of the most brilliant and creative and shrewd things that we will ever find in the Bible. And here's what he does. It's almost like there's this soliloquy here where we get to see the inner workings of a conversation that a person has with himself. It's like we're fly on the wall And the steward said to himself, what will I do since my manager is taking the management away from me? He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too weak for that. And I'm ashamed to beg. What I I do appreciate and admire about this this crook is that he's self-aware. He's self-aware. He's realistic about what he can and what he cannot do. He's so in tune with what he's good at 
that he knows he shouldn't waste his time doing something else that he's not been called to do. He, 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 he's thinking through this. I'm, 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 I'm not a manual labor kind of guy. I'm, 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 I'm a buck 35. I can't, I can't, I can't lift anything. I can't, I can't do that kind of work. Um, and and I, I, I got too much pride. I'm, I'm a steward. I manage money for a rich guy. So I can't go in the corner and beg. I got too much pride for that. What, what can I do? That's it. I got it. Here's what I'm going to do. Since I'm the one who deals with the clients, I'm going to call all of them in one by one, starting with the most important client, and I'm going to offer them deep discounts on the debt that they owe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask each one of them what they owe, and then I'm going to give them a discount. So he calls the first guy in. He says, how much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of olive oil. Just, just for all intents and purposes, this is probably about he, his debt is the equivalent of three years' salary. So he, he's, got a, he's got a lot that he owes. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit down real quick. I want you to take the invoice, and uh, I want you to write down, I want you to write down 50. So he gives them a huge discount, write down 50. You know what's interesting? Notice that the steward himself doesn't write down on the invoice himself. He instead makes the person who owes the debt write it down. So if he gets caught for doing this, they're also implicated in his crime. He is so shrewd. Y'all didn't even notice that. This is why you got to read your Bible. The Bible is ratchet at times. Anyway, let me, sorry, right. The next guy, he, he says, how much you owe? He says, I, I got 100 measures of wheat. He says, okay, I don't like you as much. Here's what you do. You don't write down 50, you write down 80. Your discount ain't the same, but you write down 80. And so, and so make no mistake about it. This is criminal activity. This is fraud. He doesn't have permission to do this. This, this is criminal. This is Enron. This is, this is Bernie Madoff. This is all of that. This is what he's doing. The, the SEC and the IRS, they're coming to look for this dude. They're going to lock him up in a minute. But here's what the clients are doing. They don't know, they don't know that he doesn't have permission to do this. Because he is a steward, and he's connected to the owner. So as far as they know, he has permission to do this. And, and so they call these unauthorized discounts a blessing. I, I think we would call it on, what, what's that? We, we would call it a hookup. We, we call this a hookup. We call, you ever got a hookup before? You be in a drive-thru and somebody you know working there, ooh, <laughs> you want some extra fries? You be like, I sure do. I sure do. The day is the day that the Lord has made. I rejoice and I'll be glad in it. Favor ain't fair. This is what this is. This is the favor of the Lord. I know I should pay for these clothes, but they said that they got it from the mall. I'm not asking no questions. This is just the Lord is finding me. This is my season. This is my time. The favor of the Lord is upon me. I imagine that this is how they're, they're reacting to this. And, and, and so what they, they, they think that he is being a good guy, but he's not. What he's doing is he's trying to ingratiate himself to their favor so that when he gets put out, he'll have a place to land. So he's making friends with his master's money. He's a smart dude. They, they would feel personally indebted to him. This is, this is, this is a quid pro quo. This, this is you scratch my back and, and I'll scratch your back. And so when I get fired, you'll have sympathy for me. You, you know, let me make it plain. Um, a, a couple months ago, a few months ago, the administ administration announced that they were going to wipe about $20,000 of student loan debt. Ooh-wee. Um, 
I ain't naming no names, but somebody I know real personally was so excited about this. Um, ooh, I, was, <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my God. Yes, Lord. Um, but then we found out that there were some haters in the room, so they, they just didn't, they didn't allow this thing to come on through, all right? This is not a political statement. I'm just speaking, having a conversation with myself. Now, you thought, oh, that is so nice of them. That is so awesome. Here's what you, feel, you and I fail to realize. They're trying to ingratiate themselves to us because they're going to need a vote in a few years. So this student loan ain't about you getting off debt-free and getting this bondage from around your neck. That's a byproduct of it. But really, this is about votes for the future. And what they're trying to do is get you on their side so for the next election, they've carried enough favor and trust with you that you said, I had $100,000 student loans. I don't have no more. I don't care what y'all believe in. You got my vote. That's the same thing that's happening in this text. They're using your, our money to forgive our debt. <laughs> this is what is happening in this text. They are being shrewd. And so when the master comes in, it is easy for him to be like, I'm going to kill you. But the story is flipped. And the surprise, the, the most surprising thing in all of Scripture happens. The master's probably lost millions of dollars at the hands of this steward. But Jesus tells this story, and he says that the master praised the unrighteous manager. Why did he praise him? It says because he acted shrewdly. He took advantage of an opportunity. We expect the master to at the least have him arrested, if not kill him. But he's shrewd, and he's praised for it. And Jesus, in one of the most difficult parables to interpret, is praising an unrighteous man. Now, what am I supposed to do with this when Jesus is praising somebody that we probably should be ridiculing? What do, what do we do with this? Here's what I want to clear up for you. Jesus is not praising his dishonesty. Jesus is praising his shrewdness. You don't have to be sinning to be shrewd. What he's saying is the way that they are doing business and taking advantage of opportunities for their own self-interest and their own self-gain is the same way people of God should be looking for opportunities to leverage them for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying he wants us to not bury our heads in the sands as Christians and just wait to go to heaven. He wants us to get out in the marketplace and do business. He wants us to get in school and get degrees. He wants us to attempt to get job promotions. He wants us to be the employee of the year. He wants us to get promotions and raises. He wants us to be the best that we can possibly be, not so that we can puff our chests up, but that we can bring glory to God so that we can change the world for the glory of God. Right? And, and so, so you, you, you don't have permission as a Christian to just walk on by whistling Dixie in your life. You got to get out there and do something. You got to get, get out there and do something. We, 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 we praise shrewd businessmen. We think of Jeff Bezos and we think about the former president who shall remain nameless. We think about people like J.P. Morgan Chase. We think about John D. Rockefeller. Oh, shrewd businessmen 
who took advantage of other people in order to, to, uh, to gain their wealth. And he's saying, no, I don't want you as Christians to take advantage of other people. I just want you to look for opportunities to leverage them for the glory of God. And what he's commending is that this, this guy was decisive. He was quick thinking. He, he's an example for us to, to follow. He, we should have the same type of energy towards our future, the, the shrewdness to plan and take advantage of opportunities for the sake of the kingdom. And, and here's what we need to know. As, here's what we need to know. As Christians, we, we shouldn't be allergic to planning. We, we shouldn't be allergic to planning. Some of y'all just wake up and just figure it out. You don't know what you're going to wear. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how long it takes to get to work. You don't care about being on time. You don't care how you present yourself while you're there. You just go to collect a check. You just put on the most unkept clothes you can find. Clock in at 9.01, although you're supposed to do it at 9.00, and leave at 4.59. But that's a failure to plan. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs. Proverbs 21, verse 5. Good life lesson. Here's what it says. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity, but hasty shortcuts leads to poverty. The Bible praises planning. Planning is good. I'm just going to be led by the Spirit. <laughs> Let me interpret them tongues. What you're really saying is, I'm just lazy. I'm just going to let God just lead me to where, wherever I go. No, God is going to lead you to plan. Oh, well, well, you know, God, God is in control, so it don't matter what I plan. That's true. Here's what it says. Proverbs 19.21, I give you that. You can make many plans but the Lord's purpose will prevail. It didn't say you should make many plans. It just says you can make plans. But ultimately, the Lord's purposes will prevail. But you don't know what that is unless you get out there and start doing something. This is a call not for us to fly by the seat of our pants. This, this is not a call for us to just let everything take its course. Of course, there's a place for that, but, but that's not always wise. When God saved us, he didn't deliver us from the need to plan for our future. He redeemed us and changed our motivation behind our planning, right? And so now when we plan, we're not just planning for us, we're planning for him. We're planning and seizing opportunities for somebody else on the behalf of the owner. We, we've been entrusted with everything we have by God. E educational plans we have so, so that we can, we can use the skills we've learned for the kingdom of God. Career plans we make so that we can work and advance our careers in a way that we leverage our influence for the kingdom. Relational plans, not just so that I can have somebody because I'm lonely or I got jealous because I saw people on the internet or I'm just entering into a relationship for comfort's sake. No, I'm exploring this to find out if you're crazy and if you're not crazy then we can take the next step and eventually maybe we can get married but I'm not just doing this flying by the seat of my pants because when you date flying by the seat of your pants it always leads to destruction I should have got more amens than that I know I'm in the right church I know I know y'all I know do you make me pull out my phone and read my text 
Y'all better stop. What he's saying is we must be shrewd for the sake of the kingdom. If an unrighteous man is willing to risk it all for the sake of something temporal that eventually will pass away and he can't take with him, how much more should we, children of the kingdom of God and followers of Jesus, plan for something that we know is eternal? If people who don't care about God plan like their hair is on fire to secure their future, how much more should we plan as believers for something that we know that will last for all of eternity? This is what he's saying. So we get to verses 9 through 12. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. For whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you or what is genuine? If you have not been faithful with what belongs to somebody else, who is going to give you what is your own? Like, I don't understand people who say, I'll wait till I'm rich to start getting my act together. Oh, oh, when I get here, then I'm going to just straighten up. When I meet the right person, I'm going to stop being so ratchet. That's not how that works. You don't do it after. You do it before. You, you, don't, you don't wait till you get a million dollars to then create a budget. I'm going home. I'm leaving today. I'm, I don't have time for this. Well, I don't, it don't even really matter right now because I don't have no. If you get a million dollars today and you don't have a plan, it's going to kill you. You're going to kill yourself and somebody else. You ever wonder why people who hit the lottery end up broke a couple years later? A failure to plan. And so here's what Jesus said. Jesus is saying. When he says, make friends for yourself, he's saying the same thing he said in Matthew 6, 19. Here's what he says. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in, treasures in heaven where neither moth, moth nor dust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. And what he's saying is when we, when we give to the kingdom, when we give to God's purposes, it does not rot. It does not go away. It lasts past us. It lasts into eternity. It has a, uh, eternal implications. And so uh, uh, we, here's what he's saying. We must make eternal investments. Now, here's what I want to say. I want to be real practical here, all right? And, and some people will say, you shouldn't be talking about this in church. Well, if I don't talk about it here, where, where else are we going to talk about it? Let, let, let. We should first make eternal investments, but then we should also make practical investments. Here's what I'm saying. You should have a 401K. You should... Have an IRA. Here's why I know you should have an IRA. Because some of y'all change jobs every three months. Okay? I know a preacher would never tell you this. Just give to the church. Just give to the church. No, no, no. Give, give, yes, do that first. But, but, that doesn't mean you don't fail to plan and invest for your future. Okay? Right? You, you should know the difference between a Roth and a traditional IRA. You can be talking about this in church. Well, well, when you get the mic, you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. It's my turn today. You should know the difference, right? One is pre-taxed, right? 
And, and, and one you pay or you put money into after tax. You, you should know the difference. You have one of both, all right? You should know the difference between a stock and a bond. Why should I know that? The same reason you know every video on TikTok. You should know the difference between a mutual fund and an exchange-traded fund, okay? How am I supposed to know all that? You Google everything else. Where's Beyonce's next concert? How old are Beyonce's kids? Who cares? Right? We make those investments, but, but we, we, we do make those investments. You should do those things. I'm telling you, you should do those things. That's wise. That's prudent. But, but the purpose behind why you do it is what really matters. You are saving long term so that at some point you can leverage those resources for the kingdom of God. We make those so that we can leverage it for the kingdom. The same thing Jesus says at one point to the Pharisees, you should have done the one thing without neglecting the other. You should invest in the kingdom and you should invest in your practical future at the same time. So here's what I'm going to do. give you three things. Name of the sermon title is Set for Life. give you three ways that you can be set for life. Here's the first one. It's going to seem contrary to what you actually think you should do. The first thing that you do is you be generous. You be generous. Here's what Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Here's what he says. This is a message version Bible. Here's what it says. 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them to go after God who piles on all the riches we could ever manage to do good, to be rich in helping others. To be extravagantly generous. If they do that, they'll build a treasury that will last gaining life that is truly life. Here's what I know. When you give to God, God gives you more because he realizes or he knows that he can trust you. That he can trust you. Giving money. So, so when we understand that giving money is not just something we do at the end of the service or when they pass the plate around or, or when you go up to the front or we give God the leftovers and put it into some measly plate or we take some small amount to the number, whatever amount comes to our mind, whatever tip we're going to give but to God, but what we'll go pay a hundred times that at brunch with our friends later. No, no, that's not it. The reality is that when we give, it has spiritual and eternal implications your giving matters. Your giving matters. Here's what I know, that when you don't give, it's an evidence of something else. When you get saved, there's something that comes behind your salvation. It's called spiritual fruit. Spiritual fruit is just evidence that you are truly saved, where you bear fruit in, in different areas of your life, and the way you manage money is one of those ways. And so when you let go and hold freely to your possessions, it means that I am growing in this area of finances because I realize, that, I realize that money is a tool. It does not control me. I control it. Right? There is this, this horrible uh, thing that says that uh, money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love. Uh, if I give two different people a dollar, if I give a crook a dollar, there's going to be one outcome with that one dollar. 
If I give a generous person that dollar, there's going to be a completely different outcome. Same dollar, but different heart behind the dollar. Does that make sense? Here's what theologian J.C. Ryle said. Unfaithfulness in money transactions is a sure evidence of a rotten state of soul. I'm going to let that sit right there. Let y'all just sit with that for a minute. Could it be that when you give, it's not necessarily about I don't have enough, but maybe it's an indication of where your soul is? Maybe that's an indication that you actually don't really trust God. Here's what we have to realize. We have to stop seeing money, giving money in church as a loss. It's not a loss. You know what bothers me? I'm, just give me a few moments. You know what bothers me? I ain't giving money to church because I need to know where the, money go, where the money's going. You know what? That's fine. You, you should. Nothing wrong with transparency. You should. But I noticed that most of the people who say that have never given money in the first place. You ever notice that? I don't know where the money is going. You don't know what Nike is doing with, with that, that, them $200 shoes that you just paid for. You don't know that to make them shoes is like $1.25. And they're barely paying the people overseas who are making those shoes. And they essentially are enslaving those people to make your Nikes or to make your Yeezys. But you're okay with where that money is going. But when it comes to the church who's taking care of people, who's giving to the community, who's taking care of school kids and giving school clothes and giving money to teachers and paying for all kinds of stuff and looking out for people. Oh, you got a problem with that because you don't know where the money's going. But when you buy your polo, you don't know what Ralph, Ralph, it ain't Ralph though. You're right. It's not Ralph because you don't know what Ralph is doing with his money. You don't know what Ralph supports that you don't even believe in. We, we talk about the command of tithe in the church. We, we say it. We say, oh, tithe, tithe. But you know what? The reality is most Christians only give 2 to 3% of their income. So let's just use a, a big round number. So, so if a person makes $40,000 a year, the average Christian out of that forty grand gives God about $800. Because I'm on one today and I like math. <laughs> Giving 3% is $1,200. I'm just doing numbers in my head today because I feel like it. And so here's what happens in church. You have a small amount of people who are giving 10 and giving over 10 and just, just, just giving all the money, right? They're giving everything while everybody else just sits back and enjoys the sacrifice of the others. So I'm not trying to condemn you, but what I'm saying is, what you do with your money matters to God. This is not to say that if you got $100,000, you give the whole $100,000 to the church. But if some, there's no conviction on the inside of you to give something, something is fundamentally wrong with your heart. There's no way you should be able to hear about the gospel and what God did for you and how he sent his son, the high price that was paid, his blood, his life. How, he, how you hear about that and he did it for your sake and you just sit back and say, I'm good. We should be so convicted, but we don't or we're not because we don't have a right view of money. We think that it belongs to us when it actually doesn't. But when we give to God, we set ourselves up for life, not temporal, but eternal. The second point I want to make, and I'm almost done. Second thing, number one is to be generous. The second thing is be faithful. The best and most accurate way to answer this question that everybody asks, what would I do if I was blessed with wealth? Here's how you, here, here, small test, you can, find out, you can find out today. 
what would I do if I had wealth? Look at how you manage what you have right now. Oh, if I had a million dollars, I know I'll buy my church a building. No, you won't. We need paper plates and plastic utensils, and you won't give towards that. Am I? I'm being too honest today. I got, I don't think I got enough sleep last night. Something's wrong with me. I don't know what's happening. Right? And so if you, if you complain about all oh, this small stuff, I don't like doing, not even money. If you complain about your job, I don't want to do this job. This job is beneath me. But when I get to my, 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 my destiny, then, then they're going to see what I'm really about. No. You be faithful right now with what you have. None of you, if you owned a company, would hire a person who you knew was not faithful. But why do we expect God to do this for us? We want God to give us the world. And God is like, you're not managing that little small piece of pie I gave you. I'm testing you right now. And you make a choice every week to fail. You literally, it, it's not even a multiple choice test. It's an open book exam. And you sitting there looking at the answers. And you're like, I'm going to just pick something else. Every week we just pick something else, right? 10% or higher. And we be like, I'll take two. That's not the answer, man. The answer's not two. It's 10. Not two. It's 10. Oh, I hope you come back next week. So God calls us to be faithful. Faithfulness in what you deem as insignificant or small is a condition for promotion to be trusted with something that is greater. And so if we manage our earthly wealth now in the right way, God will trust us with more in eternity. And that's hard for us to understand this. But here's what I want you to know today. No condemnation. God is going to judge us for the way, not just how we live, but what's encompassed in that is also the way we managed our money. God is going to hold us accountable for the way we approached our work. God is going to hold us accountable for the way that we approach our relationships. God is going to hold us accountable for the way that we parented our kids. God is going to hold us accountable for the way and the heart posture in which we served in our local church. God is going to hold us accountable for all the things that we're connected to and how we manage that. You don't believe me. Here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5.10, and I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, for we must all, you you should probably circle all. Let me, terp- let me interpret. Let me put you all. Let me give you all in the Greek. All in the Greek means all. For we must all, what does all mean? Everybody. Appear before the what? Judgment seat of Christ. So that each may be rep- repaid. We may be repaid for what has been done in the body. Whether good or evil. So here's what we don't realize. Will you be judged for your sins? No. That's good news. Because Jesus took on the penalty of our sins on the cross. Right? But that's not it. We're going to be judged for what we actually did with what God gave us. Your sins are paid for. If you are in Christ, you are forgiven, free, and clear. Whatever you did last night, last summer, last year, don't matter. It's covered under the blood of Jesus. Thank God for Jesus. He paid the price on the cross, got out of the grave. You're forgiven. However, God is going to hold us accountable for what we did with what he gave us. 
Do you get that? But that, it doesn't, but wait, there's more. He's going to repay us for what we did, whether good or evil. I don't know what God's repayment system looks like, but I imagine that for the good work we did, he's going to pay us back in a way that we can't even imagine. You, you ever file your income taxes and it comes back way more than what you thought? And you're like, boy, you, boy, they don't know what they're about to do. I don't know what I'm about to do. He's going to do that infinitely more. Well, he's going to knock our socks off for our faithfulness. So I want to be faithful now so that God can reward me and lavish me in the future. So your giving matters. And the third and final thing is choose to serve God with your money. Be generous, be faithful, and choose to serve God with your money. He says either you'll be a slave of one thing or a slave of another. There is no middle ground. And so God offers us today the opportunity to make a decision to serve him with our money. All right? And the final thing I want to say is maybe you're here today and you're not a believer. You're not a Christian. You, you've been in church. Maybe you've, I don't know, you've been in church, but you're not, you don't acknowledge God. You, you think it's cool or maybe it's some, some interesting information. You agree with some of the teachings of Jesus, but you cool on some, cool on the other. The truth of the matter is doesn't matter what you do with your money. If you steward it well and you have the best budget ever created, if you are not in Christ, you don't have enough money to pay for what your sin incurred. The best budgeteer on earth cannot pay the price of your sins. I say this every week. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let me interpret all for you, everybody. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also tells us that the wages of our sin, wages, got it, wages? The wages of our sin is what? Death. But what does God do? He sends his son Jesus to stand in our place, to take on the penalty of our sins. And here's what the rest of that scripture says. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. You don't have enough money. You can't budget well enough. You can't invest well enough. I don't care if you got a 401k, a 403b, an IRA, a Roth IRA. I don't care if you got an individual retirement account. I don't care if you got a joint account. I don't care if you got joint tenants with rights of survivorship and all the financial terminology and acumen that I learned. I don't care what you got or how much money you have. You cannot pay for what your sin costs because your sin offended a holy and righteous God. And it must be paid for because he is a just God. But he did something about it. He sent his son who paid a high price for our sins. But if you trust in him and the finished work that he did on the cross, a real man lived in human history in real time in a real place, got up out of a real grave that no one would argue this historically, theologically. Nobody would argue, argue that Jesus was a real man who lived in human history. The Bible records that over 500 eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Jesus at one time. The question has never been if Jesus existed. The question has always been if he was the son of God or not. But the proof of him being the son of God and him being who he said he was was when he got out of that grave. He died on a Friday, but on a Sunday morning, he got up from that grave. And when he got up, he rose with all power. In addition to that, your sins... Your sins were forgiven. Your slate was wiped clean. God tossed your sins in the sea of forgetfulness and put a sign outside of it that said, no more fishing allowed. So if you are in Christ, you are free from your sins. But you're free from greed and covetousness 
and you're free to serve God with your life and with your money. In Jesus' name, let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.